Our team went to the Global Fashion Agenda, or GFA's, first ever Boston Summit. And fresh off the press, we're going to recap it. I thought, what better way than to bring Helen in as well? She's one of our team members. She went with me, and I thought it would be really helpful to get my perspective and her perspective and have a conversation around it. If you haven't heard of GFA before or the Global Fashion Agenda, they're a nonprofit that's really working towards making a net positive fashion industry, which is really ambitious and really exciting. And they do a lot of great work. One of them is hosting these conferences and yesterday was their first ever summit in the United States. Usually it's in Copenhagen. There was a lot of different items talked about in the conference and we took a lot of notes which is why we're going to be referencing them because we want to make sure we give you the the best of the best and just really remember everything we covered. The theme of the conference was really great. They were talking a lot about ambition to action because there's been a lot of talk around Sustainability is important. I think we can all agree on that now, but the time is kind of running out. Time is ticking. We need to really put things into action. So we'll provide our thoughts deep dive into interesting topics and panels that was discussed. In particular, we're going to talk about the EU and U.S. policy updates, which I think everyone's excited about. There's a lot of legislation coming down the pipeline. I've referenced it on the podcast and our YouTube videos before. There's an update we're going to talk about. Helen's going to talk about AI, and then we're going to talk about resales role and decarbonizing fashion. We're going to talk about circularity and then indigenous learnings as well. And then I'll kind of summarize everything. Join the slow fashion revolution with Recloseted Radio. As the number one podcast for fashion entrepreneurs with a conscience, we're here to help you reach new heights. I'm your host, Selena Ho, the founder and CEO of Recloseted, and I'm on a mission to share my insider knowledge and strategies for launching a successful sustainable brand, growing your existing slow fashion business, and making your brand more environmentally friendly. I also invite industry experts to share their stories and insights too. So subscribe and let's get to work on transforming the harmful fashion industry. The one thing I am excited about is sometimes with conferences like this, they can kind of start high level and then there's not a lot about what you can do. And these conferences are so good at motivating you and making you passionate or reinvigorating your passion, which I'll talk about. But then they don't really give you action on them. So you're kind of lost. It's like, okay. I can be all depressed or I feel empowered, but what do I do with these feelings? We're going to try our hardest to give you action items, whether you're a brand owner or just a regular consumer. That way you can feel empowered to do something. Let's begin with our thoughts overall on the conference. And Helen, do you want to start? Absolutely. And thank you, Selena, for inviting me to come up to Boston. It's been such a great experience. And uh, I'm very excited to discuss what we Learned yesterday, this was my first ever GFA conference. I was really impressed too with the level of diversity in different nationalities and people wearing just different clothing styles and just, and also the languages that were being spoken. And you got to also see people from all different parts of the industry and adjacent to the industry. It really gave a high level of overview of how complex the fashion industry really is and Mm -hmm. how global it truly is. I think too, just impressed with the high level of the production quality. Mm-hmm. And you can get a sense of this too if you follow GFA on Instagram, which you definitely should. Their team really goes all out to create yeah. an incredible event. The video, the music, the amazing food, all of this stuff, the production quality does not obfuscate the fact that we're all there to talk about very serious issues. Yeah. I thought, honestly, it was going to be kind of overwhelming and draining, but I actually found it really energizing. Some quotes that really resonated with me throughout my time yesterday was this idea that we have severed production from consumption and at this stage in 
capitalism, if you will. We've suffered production from consumption and also in disposability from consumption. Mm-hmm. And it kind of points to how I think both for consumers, but also for brands, just how much a fashion scope is kind of hidden. And another stat, if you will, that resonated with me and has stuck itself in my brain is from this panel on climate mitigation and talking about the effect that climate events, particularly high heat and flooding will have in major production centers. This was referencing a report that Cornell co-authored. And one of the statistics was that in 2030, Rachi in Pakistan is probably going to experience 190 days of extreme heat, which is very scary. And it really puts into a human perspective too, because just the effects that I have on one's body and what that means for people working in factories as well as brands tell a real human element to what can seem kind of abstract. What did you think, Selena? I briefly wanted to talk about some of the things you discussed yeah. because it's all really important stuff. First of all, with like the 190 days of heat, it's such a powerful number, mm-hmm. but then also they're not the only areas of the yes. world that are going to experience this. Yeah. And there's already so much climate displacement and migration, and it's just going to continue. Which is why, again, I think the theme of the conference being ambition to action is so important because if we don't start acting and we don't start acting faster, this is just going to continue to escalate. And we're in very privileged positions if we live in like Canada, America or Europe or Australia or wherever, where we see about this on the news and that's like our only way of knowing about it. But otherwise, we don't know. So it's important to go to conferences like this, hear different perspectives, hear lived experiences and be able to see it so that it's like, yes, the work we're doing is important and it is really crucial that we speed it up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have really similar <laughs> thoughts to you. First of all, the food at this conference is so good. We were talking about yeah. <laughs> Verdes and usually at conferences like this, the food is trash, but no, the food is really good. So we appreciated that. The first thing I will say off the bat is that I'm really glad I carved out the time to attend. I know that sometimes it can be really hard to set aside time to go to conferences and set aside time to travel too. I'm just really glad I was able to carve that up for myself because coming out of it, I think it really reinvigorated my passion for the work we're doing. And because I've been doing it for a while, it's not that I'm not passionate about it, but I think I sometimes forget the bigger why, which is why I always talk about why it's so important to have your why. But it also was helpful because I got to see all the people at the conference and just see the amount of work that's being done and the amount of people that also care about this. And it's like not just us, it's not just our clients and not just our community, but all these other businesses too, which was really cool to see. So I think that really reinvigorated the passion, but also a hopefulness that honestly, I think I'm lost a little bit. Like we were talking a little bit about how sometimes I feel a bit jaded now, but I think that really reinvigorated me, which is really nice. We've seen the effects of climate change and there's so many like 2025, 2030, 2050 goals. And we're like pretty much almost there. Like it's going to be 2024 soon, which is crazy. And so the time for discussing and sustainability is important or crucial is long gone and we need to act faster. And then there's still a lot of issues present in the industry. It's like in a way you can eat buffet with all the things that are wrong with the industry. Just pick like pick anything and you can work on it. But I've been to Benhagen last year. I did a podcast recap on it. We can like leave it down below. But some of the things that were discussed that were still kind of problems there are still problems now. Supply chain is continuously not great. And I think that the conference does a good job of bringing different people in the supply chain. And continuously, they've just like continued to get the short end of the stick. They feel 
the impacts and they feel frustrated. And honestly, if brands wanted to do better, they would. And it's just very frustrating because a lot of these suppliers, and when I talk about suppliers, I mean manufacturers and other suppliers, but a lot of them, they just don't have the leverage or negotiating power because if they tell a brand, no, we need more time or no, we need to increase prices, the brand can just pick up and move to another production facility. They don't have a lot of leverage. And the data and measurement continues to be something that's challenging. It's being worked on, but it's still something that's very prevalent in the industry. I was really, really impressed with some of the innovations. And we're actually going to have some of those businesses and founders on the podcast because I think a lot of them are doing great work and I would love to amplify it and share it with all of you. But one of them is a material company. They take fishnets and they break them down. And that's not a new thing, but the process in which they do that is quite innovative. They break it down mechanically using machinery versus chemicals. And a lot of companies now are breaking it down with chemicals and they try to do it closed loop so the chemicals get reused and continue to stay and they don't leach out into waterways and stuff. But if we can do it mechanically, that's amazing. Just a lot of really cool innovations. And then to end my really long preamble, I was supposed to be short couple quotes. There is a lot of staff and things that came up for every single panel, but the two quotes that really resonated with me are as follows. So the first one is, we're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And I think that is just very clear. Lots of pieces of sustainability are nuanced and gray, but this is very black and white. You're either helping or you're not, and there's just no in between at this point. And then the second quote that really resonated with me is, how do we make fast fashion as gross and unappealing as smoking? Which is something that like really got me thinking. We're going to dive a little bit deeper now. But before we do, I just wanted to say if you aren't already part of our community, which is called the Sustainable Fashion Partners, or TSF, you need to join because we're going to take this discussion, take it to the next level with you guys. So in the community, we would love to hear your thoughts. If there's certain things that we talk about in this video that you want us to go deeper on, or guests you want on the podcast, then make sure you join the community. It's absolutely free. There's a bunch of resources in there. There's a masterclass. I do line workshops. We talk about all our video on the podcast in there. So make sure you join. The link is recloseted.com slash TSF. It's going to be on the screen. It's going to be in the show notes. But yeah, make sure you join because it's going to be hopefully a really good discussion. I want to have this be like a two-sided conversation, basically. Yeah. Anything to add before we go into policy? I had a couple of thoughts. I'm trying to collect them. I've been in fashion kind of on the periphery as a working as a stylist, not so much on the production and not like on the behind the scenes. On the behind the scenes side. Yeah. I think something too that was brought up multiple times yesterday in different ways is that brands still have a hard time understanding how their things are being made and under what conditions. And again, with the obfuscating of the supply chain and all that stuff. And I think also, again, you're mentioning of um, shifting kind of perspectives of how do we make sustainability or like secondhand more normalized? I'm thinking about the indigenous uh, panel that will get to this idea of if you find sustainability overwhelming, maybe reframing it Mm -hmm. and thinking of it in terms of circularity. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes we use these terms that can seem kind of just too broad and fuzzy and making it more personalized. I think it's more helpful because it's more concrete and easier to act upon. Yeah, and for meaningful, for any word in general, what does this mean to me? And I think it's important to define words before we use them, especially buzzwords like sustainability, like circularity. Which is also a complicated thing like ESG. Totally. There's a whole panel discussing. Anyway. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. There's so much. Yeah. Let's talk about policy. Lots of people are really excited about policy legislation. This discussion is going to be centered around U.S. policy because that's just what was talked about at this conference because we're in Boston. 
And there's a lot of legislation coming down the pipeline in the EU, which is very exciting and very needed and very long overdue. And then as such, there's been a lot of media and eyes on that because it's so exciting. Fashion is not a very regulated industry, which is insane. I often talk about how for our clothes, we wear them for hours and hours on our skin every single day. Everyone wears clothes. And yet it's not really regulated. And for industries like food, it's so heavily regulated, which makes sense. And it should be. But fashion should be as well. So it's very long overdue. Because there's so much EU legislation going on and eyeballs on it, sometimes other countries can be seen as not have done very much work yet. And U.S. is doing work, but it has been seen as they're like lagging behind, basically. That's the narrative. Yeah, that's yeah. the narrative right now. And I think the key message I took away was that there is a lot of action happening. I will talk about kind of what was covered on the panel that stuck out to me. The first one is that they are trying to bring forth indigenous product passports, which is not a new thing. Basically, the idea is your you as a consumer are going to be able to scan a garment and then on your phone or on any device you choose, it will pop up about what the product is. So you can see like not only the composition of fabric, but where it's from, maybe a cool video or photos of the production facility, the landing page basically for your for your garment and it's having the tag come to life. Yeah. That's something that they really want to pass. And one of the panelists said something that was really inspiring. She was like, we're really trying to make labels obsolete and move completely to this so that as clothes are continued to be like resold or rented, if the tag comes off or you lose it, no big deal. There's still this digital product passport following it. And then the funny kind of thing was they were the FTC and the U.S. needs to approve this. But they were like, yeah, but the FTC is too busy suing Amazon right now. And the second thing is I appreciate how difficult creating policy and regulation and legislation can be. I think there was a lot of vulnerability and candidness on the panel because a lot of them were like, yeah, I don't even know if we have the right people in the room right now doing this. Perspectives and voices are not being heard, but there's a lot of pressure to get something out the door. I, I got the sense that there's a lot of pressure to put something together because EU is acting quite quickly. And the EU has had like five plus years to neutrally think through the scope, which is amazing. Like they've involved a lot of different stakeholders. They've involved brand owners, they've involved nonprofits, suppliers. And so they've had a lot of time to talk about this without it being too political. But the U.S. hasn't had that. So now they have to act fast and put something together. And someone on the panel said that like they're very much so in a move fast, break things kind of stage. As a person that's like very organized at type A and also as someone that's like cares very deeply about this, it was slightly concerning. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. To hear them admit that they don't think they have the right people in the room and they're being pushed to push something out. And then the other thing that was concerning, too, was someone on the panel quite candidly said that if they push out bad policy at the worst, there could be really detrimental consequences on a brand level, on a supplier level, on a textile waste level, just on so many levels. And then at the best, if they push out bad policy, it could just not do what we want it to do. Let that sink in. They don't have the right people in the room. They're being forced to do something. And they're like, oh, yeah, at worst, it could have detrimental consequences. And at the best, it just doesn't do what we want it to do. And brands find loopholes and they don't act in the accordance that we want them to do. This is not just for this scenario. This is for policy in general, right? If you create a law for anything or a bill for anything, you need to have the right people in the room. They always said, like, democracy is messy. And that's part of what 
a democracy and a democratic process involves. But yeah, that was interesting to me. And they feel concerned, but I also have trust that they'll like figure it out. Full disclosure, I was not at this panel. Uh, oh, we yeah. kind of had to triage it. So I went to um, the, the AI one and you went to yeah. this policy one. Really said they were at the same time because yeah. both of them were really juicy topics. So we had to divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that really stood out to me is one of the panelists said that fashion has always been marketed and seen as being fun and frivolous. And in many ways, it can be, right? Fashion's a way to express yourself, to be creative. It can sometimes very much so be an art form. And in that regard, it can come across as like fun, silly, frivolous, whatever. But we need to stop talking about it like it is. Yes, and it's fun. And yes, it's glamorous and all this stuff. But at the same time, there's very real impacts that are being had with people that make clothing, with their environment, with the planet. There's very real impacts and we need to start taking this seriously. And she was saying one of the consequences of having fashion being portrayed in such a manner is that policymakers and lawyers who are very kind of serious people don't take this seriously. And we're just not getting the expertise that we need in this field to make good policy, unfortunately. And hopefully that changes. I think there's a lot of great work being done. And a lot of the panelists, they were kind of hinting at the fact that they're not really getting paid that much to do it. Splash, it might even be off the side of their desk volunteer work. I really hope that it gets the attention and the funding and the resources that it deserves. I mean, I'm not American, I'm Canadian, so as your friendly neighbor, I hope you guys figure it out. I also hope we figure it Yeah, because also Canada's going to do whatever America does, as we always do. So I'm not going to dive into the EU stuff because this was very U.S. focused, but I wanted to give you all an update because there's a lot of different stuff going around right now, and it's a hot topic, and a lot of people are interested about what's going on. So TLDR, things are happening. Things are happening fast. It may not be amazing from day one, but I think they're very much so in an iteration process. I was not at this panel, but based on what we talked about yesterday, Mm -hmm. I think in addition to fashion being seen as frivolous, it's also been feminized, which is seen Mm -hmm. as being less there, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's sort of misogyny and those assumptions as well. And it can kind of obfuscate a lot of the real work and the harm that is being done. Just so many layers. Yeah. So with all that being said, you might feel a bit frustrated because especially you live in the U.S. and you're like, I want things to be done differently. I want brands to be held accountable. I just want to do something about it. Here's what you can do. These are a couple of our suggestions. The first thing I would challenge you to do, no matter if you're a fashion consumer or a brand owner, just like everyone can do this, is to think about fashion differently. Yes, it can be fun and yes, it can be creative. And yes, like a certain outfit can make you feel better than another one. But you need to start to educate yourself and really increase your own awareness and psyche about the actual effects of our clothing and why it's so important. So we'll have some resources linked for you down below. And when you join TSF, there's like a whole sustainable fashion resource post that we have pinned. There's the True Cost, which is an amazing documentary. Part of the reason why I started recalling it in the first place I also wrote the Recosited Handbook, so if you haven't checked it out yet, make sure you do so. But you need to start to educate yourself and think of fashion differently and encourage those around you to think about fashion differently too, because this is something that we need to start taking seriously because it is very serious. This I wanted to kind of ask you because you're American. Yeah. And as much as our democratic process in Canada is kind of similar, it's also different. Absolutely. I would say start paying attention to fashion-related bills or even fashion industry adjacent bills, either in your local um, government or obviously going up and before like Congress and Senate, 
And I believe now there's a fabric act that's being discussed and things like that. Really just start again to pay attention. Oftentimes you can go on like uh, the Congress website and read actual text. And again, it's kind of legal and complicated. I think just start to pay attention to what is happening again, specifically within fashion, but also in environmental sectors and like garment worker rights, because fashion kind of sets at this intersection of different industries. I think doing some internal work to figure out what is interesting to you about fashion, about these issues and kind of going deeper into that. I would hope at this point in U.S. history that we're becoming more aware that local government is important, (laughs) but paying attention to what's happening locally and really honestly calling your representatives and talking about these issues and that they're important to you because people do pay attention to that, like not just your congressperson, but also their staff. Do make notes of the calls that they receive and about what issues and it it is being paid attention to. You know, I know it's hard to get on the phone and like call a stranger, but it really can make a huge impact and people do pay attention to that. So yeah, those would be the two main actions. Also not being afraid to talk to other people in your community. I think we need to act both in your immediate area and then also think on a national level. And I would also say vote. <laughs> that too, yes, of course. <laughs> Like, don't complain if things aren't happening, if you didn't vote. Register to vote. Please vote. 2024 is coming. Yes. Faster than we think. Oh, yeah. Please, please vote. As a friendly, concerned Canadian neighbor that's now living in London, please vote. (laughs) Okay. Okay, that's a really good conversation, I think, about policy. And then, like, we discussed the policy and AI panel were unfortunately at the same time. So we divided and conferred. And so, Helen, do you yeah. want to talk through kind of what you learned at the AI panel and what some of the high-level overview and takeaways were? I will say that I'm not a technologist. I did my best to understand uh, what was being discussed here. One of the elements was the potential for AI to create recommendations for people. There is an element, obviously, of personalizing content for people already on digital platforms and showing people products that they would like and use and products that will fit their body. The idea is you train different types of AI to basically do the work of a tailor or a stylist. So begin to understand your body, what clothes work for you and what your personal style is. And the idea is that that will help reduce potentially retail returns. And in doing so, potentially cut down on emissions, because if you're buying something that's already sort of pre-selected for you to work, then you won't return it. And then using AI to potentially reduce overconsumption because you're showing people pieces that they're sort of predisposed to like already. I'm a little bit personally skeptical about this because if we think of what overconsumption actually is, it's not so much what you're buying, but it's the quantity and the frequency. If we have this sort of hyper curation of products that may not change the frequency because we're not changing the buying behavior necessarily. For instance, if you're used to buying products once a week or multiple times a week, I think that's not going to change just because you're seeing things that are more personalized. And actually might make it work. What I have in the notes is to use an example from a different industry. If Netflix, which already offers some personalization, if they go hardcore on their algorithm and you log into Netflix and everything that you see is personalized content, it's not going to make you watch less TV. It'll probably make you watch more TV. My thought is it may not reduce overconsumption. It may increase consu- overconsumption because it's not addressing the habit that we have. Yeah. Um, just basically buying too much, whether we It's solving the wrong problem. Yeah, 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 whether we need it or not to address the overconsumption part. That's really sort of internal, emotional, and psychological work that we yeah. need to do. And AI can't really do that for us. So in addition, so we have three things. We have... um 
AI potentially um, mitigating returns and cutting down on emissions. Then we have this maybe debatable idea of AI reducing overconsumption. The other way that AI could potentially help the fashion industry is like basically improving existing processes. I think the example was given of reducing waste on the cutting room factory floor and stuff like that. Yeah. Pretty much improving existing operations. Yeah. But do you have any thoughts? Because you know a lot more about AI than I do. I'm not like a tech techie friend either. But there's a couple of things. As you were talking about the piece on overconsumption, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper there because I agree it's solving the wrong problem. If you're just getting more personalized things you are going to buy more, let's yeah. be real, right? Yeah. But instead, if you could also have an inventory, like the AI could have an inventory of your wardrobe and what you have and be like, actually, you know what? You already have something like this. Why don't we style it different ways? And, you know, almost yeah. a curated wardrobe thing. I yeah. think that would be better if we take it one step further because how many times have we bought something and then, oh my God, I have something like this at home. I just exactly. didn't realize. Yeah. Right? We need to start to solve the right problem. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing too, when you mentioned the design process i think that's where a lot of ai stuff can be really exciting about taking the fitting process and typically you have to hire one type of model one size but if you have a very size inclusive line instead of doing that maybe you can fit it on this yard retrofitted metaverse you know robot thingy and i don't have the correct terminology (laughs) for it but i think robot thingy is technical yeah robot thingy (laughs) we're in a trade market but yeah, I think that can be really helpful. And then when you're creating the markers too, I think mm-hmm. just having AI do it, just being more efficient with fabric, that can reduce a lot of waste. The kind of takeaways here. I think the first one I talked about is the fashion design process. I think when we talk about AI metaverse, all these trendy techie things, a lot of it is still quite far in advance in terms of actually being commercially usable and viable a lot of it is being developed right now and developed at a very alarmingly fast rate but that's a topic for another time but that being said there is a lot of promise in the fashion design process keep an eye out for potentially things that could help your pattern maker be more efficient or if you're a pattern maker like help you be more efficient and keep an eye out for things that could allow you to potentially reduce your textile waste on the cutting room floor like we talked about And then the other thing, too, is I know there was a lot of hype around the metaverse and like fashion shows and things like that. And I feel like it died down a little bit, but it's still very much true if you can showcase your collection in a way where you don't need to have people fly in and you don't need to have like huge menus and have such a big impact. Then you just do it online and still have it be impactful. I think that could be really cool. And then the other one, too, is if you... I, oh my God, this stuff is really going over my head and I don't really know what all of it means. How can I actually use it to better my business? I did talk about it on our Recloseted Radio podcast episode. It was episode 158 and it was called How Fashion Brands Can Leverage AI and ChatGPT. So we will leave it down below for you to check out if you want as well. Yeah. And then generally just like stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. The, the CTA. Yeah. <laughs> the next panel that I wanted to talk about is Resale's Role in Decarbonizing Fashion. And resale is having a very big moment in the industry because it can be a very helpful tool to help brands decarbonize their impact. And there was a lot of really interesting things that were being said. I know it was one of your favorite panels too, so I'm excited to dive in. But first of all, they talked about how not everything needs to be designed for future vintage or for future resale or repurposing, such as like underwear, undershirts, socks. That is totally fine because not everything can be. 
And it was nice to hear that. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times people just assume that everything needs to be reworn. But for the pieces that can, which obviously are the majority, you do need to, of course, design intentionally. And that started from the beginning at the design concept and just like sourcing the materials, really thinking about timeless pieces, high quality pieces that last long. And that is so important first and foremost. And they were saying that they did a bunch of different studies. And this is probably not surprising to you, but items hold their value best based on two things. The first one is brand. So brand carries a lot of things. If we look at like an Hermes Birkin bag, obviously that carried value and appreciates every single year. And the second thing is product quality as well. So if a product can continue to be worn and wear even maybe better over time, like a really good leather jacket or something, or like a really good vintage Levi's pair of jeans, then it holds its value. It's all about, again, being intentional from the beginning. And I know you're really passionate about this. Did you have any thoughts around those topics? I was already kind of predisposed <laughs> to like the yeah. subject just because it, it goes back to a lot of my personal sort of fashion values, if you will. And what really struck me and something that I hadn't fully thought about was it's also profitable for brands to invest in resale and design with either longevity in mind or in design with the end of the cycle in mind when you're creating products. Also, the longer you make something to last, you're not just theoretically selling it one time. You can sell it multiple times over. You continue to make profit out of it. And you're also reducing climate impacts because you're stretching out that life cycle. It's just really cool and fun to hear it talked about in that way. And yeah, I love the idea of future vintage. And just going upon Helen's point, so what she's talking about is a different business model. I've talked about it before, but right now in fashion, Brands only make money when they first sell something. They are incentivized to overproduce because the more they produce, the more they make. Unless, of course, they skyrocket their prices and you sell less, but you make more. But still, in that model, you still have to sell new stuff. And in this regard, if brands are now able to have something in circulation and continue to make money while it's being circulated, that can really help with the overproduction and overconsumption that we're seeing right now. And there's a lot of blockchain technology that came up and people were like really excited about it because they were like, okay, if a brand like a Patagonia, for example, makes a jacket and there's a blockchain chip in it or something, and it's on the chain and they know that, okay, Helen bought it. Now Helen's going to resell it to Selena. But when Helen resells it to Selena right now on Poshmark or Depop or whatever, Helen makes all the money. Patagonia yeah. does not. But in this case, if you're able to track it, maybe the brand gets like a 10% kickback and they are rewarded for having something that can be resold and can be resold potentially at the same value, if not maybe more, and then also be rewarded for something that is high quality and can actually be resold to me and I can yeah. like then wear it and maybe I can sell it to like you, right? So it's like really important that brands now adopt and think differently about how they do their business. I think something that also stuck with me is the sort of it perhaps tension between designing for longevity, especially when it comes to style trends, the fact that fashion has been so trend-driven, mm -hmm. how do you kind of hold those two things at the same time? If you will, especially from like a business and design perspective, maybe it's product-dependent, maybe the thing that is more trend-driven, you just design it more responsibly so that it doesn't end up a landfill or something. You know what I mean? It's just like an, an interesting theoretical and, and business conundrum that's presented with this new way yeah. of doing things yeah and it was great for them to talk about this during this panel and there was like graphs being thrown up about like showing if a brand just continued to try to increase their profits i think it was five percent every year mm -hmm. 
which is kind of, I would say, kind of the bare minimum of what most brands are doing. And they like didn't do resale, like the carbon exponentially increased. Whereas if they implemented some sort of resale, like it would start to dip down, which is kind of cool to see. And so they kind of left it at that, which was the part that really irked me because yeah. I was like, okay, we're bought in now. We need to be more different with sustainable business models. And if you were a brand founder, I feel like you would have been itching to know, okay, like what do I do? Like what are my next steps? Spell it out for you. Basically, you either resell or rent. And I think renting is also something that's really, really interesting and they didn't really touch on it. But again, like if you have this beautiful blouse that you're wearing and you don't want to sell it quite yet, but we almost adopt some sort of like sharing economy for the closet. We share our cars on Uber and Lyft, but our clothes, a lot of the time, just sit in our closet unworn. And if you could rent that out to someone else, that would be really cool. And again, if we're able to track it and brands can make money, they are incentivized to make something that's high quality and it's a piece of inventory almost in their arsenal that's like continuously making money out there. And if that's the case and you look at it differently, then you just sell it and you're done. And you know that something's going to continue to cycle in the economy and in the world. It's a different level of thinking when it comes to design and choosing the material mm -hmm. and like the production process probably as well. Yeah. I'm wondering with these sort of clothing rental companies, I need to see what reports there were about this, but I heard from like other sustainable fashion like podcasts and stuff that those are not actually like very sustainable because of all the maintenance of the clothing that's involved. Mm -hmm. Like you have to dry clean everything mm -hmm. and all the water and like resource waste. Um, I don't know, just something to put out there in terms of the rental option. But it's all about figuring out what problems we're solving and how to best solve it given the current technology, current innovations, and current budget and time constraints and resources. It's about how you can best move forward given what you're given. And yes, for a lot of those rental companies, like they're not really a rental company. Jennifer Hyman always talks about how she's actually in the dry cleaning business. And dry cleaning is so bad and uses perg and like all these awful chemicals. I mean, the same could be argued about the clothes we're producing and throwing to landfills. It really is, I think, about if we zoom out, challenging brands to think about different forms of business when it comes to fashion and how they can continue to make money on clothes without just selling more. I think that's like the key takeaway and having brands think differently about that and challenge how such a old industry has always performed and really challenge the fact that there hasn't been a lot of innovation and shakeup in that regard and maybe there should be, yeah. right? We really transformed the taxi industry. We really transformed the hotel industry, why should we not revolutionize and think differently about our clothes? And so for you, what to do is really encouraging you to not just buy new. I really think for a lot of pieces, like you can thrift, you can shop secondhand, you can go to clothing swaps, swap with your family and friends, and really just try to make use of what's already out there, really, and kind of incentivize brands to be able to participate in this space. The innovation form that we went to, which was a meet and greet booth situation where we could look at with different vendors and it was sort of product vendors, but also technology vendors. And there was a technology vendor there who was helping brands with resale, incorporating that into their website and on their business model. A lot of the cool innovative companies that we met, I want to try to get them on the podcast yeah. and have them like talk deeper because they're clearly experts in what they're doing. And like I mentioned, there's so many different areas wrong with the fashion industry. So they've chosen a very specific problem to go deep on. And I would love to have them on the podcast mm -hmm. to explain it to us and also just give us again some hope that things are actually happening. I think that's a really good discussion on resale and how that can help decarbonize. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about is circularity. So there were a few 
major takeaways I had. I'll overview them and then we can go on a little bit of a fun journey yeah. about plastic water bottles. <laughs> yeah, I talked about last night. Yeah. <laughs> Helen had to listen to me rant about plastic water bottles for 15 minutes last night at dinner. First of all, a panelist said for circularity at its truest form, it actually really shouldn't have a beginning and an end. It should just continue and perpetuity, which I think is so true. Because that's the true definition of circularity. But in this instance, we do have a beginning. The garment has its birth, if you will. And very importantly, like we were talking about in the resale discussion, you need to design with intentionality and that it's going to continue to be reworn, be resold, be rented. And then at the end of life, have something it can do and not just end up rotting away in the landfill. And then two things that were really thought-provoking for me in this conversation. The first one is, is it circular or is it simply lifetime extension? And that was a big one because the panelists talked about how recycled plastic water bottles is a prime example of that. There was such a big resurgence of this back I think pre-COVID even 2019 every single athletic brand was using recycled plastic water bottle in their leggings and their athletic wear and then all of a sudden all of them were like oh yeah we're green and we're conscious and we're circular because we're taking waste from plastic water bottles turning it into fabric and then turning it into leggings and we're giving it new life one could argue it's circular but he was making a point that it's just lifetime extension because these plastic water bottles, yes, could have gone to the landfill, but instead now they're in your leggings. But what happens when you're done with your leggings? And the rant I'm going on yesterday with Helen is that on surface, it sounds good because, okay, we're taking these recycled plastic water bottles, we're turning them into fabric, and we are diverting them from landfill. But it uses a lot of chemicals, it uses a lot of energies to actually turn it into fiber. And then not only that, studies have shown that recycled plastic water bottle leggings or whatever they actually emit more microplastics than virgin. And so that's another thing. And then last but not least, currently with our technology and innovation, we can't do anything with these goddamn leggings after. So we really just pushed the problem down the road, which is why the lifetime extension thing was such a mind-blowing connection for me. The kind of ironic part I was talking to Helen about was we have so many plastic water bottles right now. We have finally gotten to a place where we can kind of use the existing plastic water bottles to make new ones and we don't have to use virgin plastic. But if we take all these plastic water bottles and we turn them into leggings, we're just pushing the problem down the line and creating new problems. We really need to be more strategic. We yeah. need to be more strategic about this. We just thought it's also one of the problems with blended fabric, fabric that also uses polyester. Sure is that it can be recycled afterwards because you can't untangle yep. the fibers. Yep, exactly. Some things 80% polyester and 20% cotton. I, back when I was ignorant, I was like, oh, just like take out the cotton and like, you can't do that. As of right now, you cannot, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe in the future you can with all the robotic thingies going on. <laughs> Trademarked, yes. <laughs> technical term. Yes, technical term. That was the first one, the circularity versus lifetime extension concept. And I loved that. And then the second thing was, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about recycled cotton, which is great. But someone made up, someone brought up a really good point is, okay, once we have this down and it's working and it's amazing, what happens to the cotton farmers? And this is also true. In an ideal world, we can equip them with new skills and they can just do something else. But that's going to take time. That's probably going to take 
a generation. Yeah, or a decade. Unfortunately, we need to be very cognizant of that. And that's a theme throughout the entire conference around having the right voices at the table. Just because these people aren't there doesn't mean that we don't have to factor them in and we don't have to live them into the plan and think about how this affects their livelihood. So it's really important to make sure we are cognizant of how one decision can then domino affect many other decisions. I think a comment that was made at this panel also was referencing recent EU regulations about the fact that if fabric is being made into materials and those materials are going into Europe, that fabric has to be pre-washed. And then I think the point that was being made was suddenly all this fabric has to be pre-washed. What does that mean for the water quality in these communities where that process is being done? Because it has to happen on a very short time frame. And that's an, a similar example of well-meaning intentions, but it's going to have these literal, in this case, downstream effects that were not considered when that uh, decision was drafted and made. 100%. Yeah. It's just like the policy discussion, right? How I was some concerned that they don't have the right people in the room. Well, it's like that same thing here. I think really just stressing to people that are in these spaces, if you're ever in a position where you have the responsibility and the privilege to be doing this work, making sure that you ensure that there's diverse thoughts and people and perspectives at the table so that there's actually inclusive policies that are being done. I know that's a very idealized view and I can definitely be a positive and idealistic person, but I do think that's so important. If you have the responsibility, you definitely need to do everything in your power to ensure that voices are being heard. Yeah, absolutely. And connecting this back to the climate panel mitigation, two panelists both were very interesting because one of them was sort of representing traditional factory work mm -hmm. and the other panelist was really addressing non-traditional garment workers and people who make things from home and that are not always considered when we talk about supply chain management. Also thinking about those people and the effects that all of this will have on them and, and, sort of, and again, including that in the conversation. And I also I have a question for you as well. So we met with a vendor who makes those items out of steel. Yeah. And that's, that's the difference to you between that kind of system and product and the leggings made from plastic water bottles. Why does her approach work and the other approach doesn't? I guess in this case, I don't know as much about fishnets, if I'm being honest, but I'm going to assume that fishnets, if there's a hole, obviously, I think the net, maybe it could be repaired, but let's assume if the fishnet has holes everywhere, it can't be repaired, then the net is probably going to the landfill. Mm -hmm. And so if in that case, we're then taking it and turning into fabric, I think I'm slightly more okay with that. It's just because the plastic water bottles, they only decided to do something because there was such a big problem. And I think it was so widely covered in the media and plastic water bottles was just getting a lot of hate. So then yeah. they were, let's turn it into fabric and make it seem we're doing something. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert at this. I yeah, know it's important to have them on the podcast, but I think if we can take something that is truly going to landfill and make a new life out of it and do it in a way where there's not a lot of chemicals, it doesn't use a lot of energy, then I think that's something that I can get behind. But it's really about, I guess, twofold. It's not it's actually diverting from landfill and not just pushing it down the road and then doing it in a way that is not harmful. Closing this out, you might be like, okay, what do I do? Don't buy something because it's made out of recycled plastic water bottles. That's number one. <laughs> Don't just buy it because you feel like it's cute and you feel good about yourself. Only buy it if it's something you actually really need. And in general, really think about if it's actually going to be used and loved on your end. And then finally, the last panel we wanted to talk about was around Indigenous practices and perspectives. And this was one of 
I would say one of my favorite panels and it was the last one of the day so at that point we were quite exhausted and it was actually a very energizing panel it's a great last panel for the day and there was a lot of great things here I think both of them had really great perspectives to bring and originally from Canada and we've had such deeply traumatic indigenous histories and things that have happened I've known that Indigenous people had really beautiful practices and they were basically the OG sustainable people. They did sustainability before it was a thing. They always took care of the land. They always made sure they didn't take more than they um, could allow it to foster and prosper because they very much sell them off their land. And I think it's a very beautiful practice. And they've always been intentional about their resources from day one. And both of them were talking about how you can take these ancient practices and be inspired by them and almost reuse them and think about them today. One of the examples was done by, I think her name was Tracy. Mm -hmm. She was talking about this example of the three sisters where it was like three different materials. And I am going to cheat her down and get her yeah. on the podcast to talk about it because I'm not going to do it justice. Yeah, she's a Dene, a Navajo shoe center. Yeah, it was so cool. And she was talking about how you can like use these principles to design the shoes and then in the same regard, though, obviously, we've seen a lot of brands like culturally appropriate and take indigenous intellectual property, and that's obviously not good. So I want to bring her on to talk about how brands can take inspiration from that with consent and do it in a way where it's so respectful, and then also do it in a way where like the indigenous people, if they want to, not that it's their responsibility, but if they want to, they can like share these practices that they've been doing since day one. Yeah. And like there was a really big call to action. Like this is one of the panels that had a very clear call to action around brands and like people needing to reach out, talk to them if they're like willing to share, because again, it's not their responsibility and like really build relationships and to stop playing telephone and just like talk to them. And the thing too that really breaks my heart is that indigenous people have been taking care of the planet and trying to preserve it as much as they can from day one but they're more more often than not the ones that are actually being displaced in these types of situations and they're seeing the effects of climate change which is so unfair and so unjust so yeah that's that's just something i wanted to really flag and this is something that really reinvigorated kind of my passion on the work we do and I think brings to light that we need to amplify these types of messages and have them on the podcast which I'm like really excited about but then also have these difficult discussions about yeah. how brands can learn from them but in a way that's like respectful and responsible yeah absolutely I think I think it was really I was really impressed that they had this panel at all because I could easily see indigenous creators and designers being overlooked i mean totally yeah. i think the fact that they were there at all was really like a great thing and yeah it was very inspiring tracy did not mince words she was very much like you need to work with us or like yeah. you know and act and we can do it you know it was i thought it was really inspiring and yeah i would love to have her on the podcast and then she ran out of the discussion did you want to talk about your example yeah absolutely i will start off by saying that i am not indigenous I've always been interested in like history and material culture. I credit learning about the history of different indigenous people in North America as starting my creative fashion and sewing journey. I feel like I owe a lot to, to those communities. I'm also a trained anthropologist. So there's also thought about how do we honor history and be respectful and not culturally appropriate. And so, for example, 
there's this designer, Vinny Yellowtail. She's Crow and Cheyenne. And she has this amazing brand creating indigenously inspired wear. So she uses a lot of traditional indigenous designs, but with modern silhouettes. And for example, if you know the history of 19th century clothing of those indigenous tribes, you'll know that it's common to use elk teeth as a way of adorning women's dresses. And she has taken that design motif and turned it into a print for scarves and dresses. And so if you look at that, you know, the history just adds this whole layer to the depth of what she's doing. And so I really like her stuff, but I had this sort of quandary of can I, as a non-Indigenous person, you know, buy her things? Is that okay? Or is it culturally appropriating? How do I navigate this? I did end up buying one of her pieces and I love it, one of her scarves, but it is, I think, a question to be considered wanting to be respectful, but also wanting to support. I don't have a clear answer, but that's just an example of a great desire that you should shout out. And I feel like it's a case-by-case basis. And if you're ever in doubt, like just ask them. I'm sure they would appreciate being asked versus feeling, you know, like they've been appropriated after the fact. So just like ask people, I think they're willing to have these conversations. And sometimes we can feel afraid to even ask or have these conversations, but I really think that you shouldn't be. So yeah, I highly encourage you just ask. I feel like in these kind of scenarios where people are taking their culture and they're putting it into something and being creative and turning it into something so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I would assume that they would like to be supported. So I think that like you're definitely asking the right questions and brands and all of us in general need to ask more questions, but also just like be curious and actually be willing to have these conversations with people and don't shy away from them and don't be scared about them. Having these hard conversations about history and allyship too that need to happen in in many different areas. Sometimes I worry that we put all Indigenous people into one big box, whereas in reality, there's a lot of differences. There's just a ton of nuance all of the things that we're talking about today, if you're interested in learning more and you're in the U.S., especially on the East Coast, there's the National Museum of the American Indian, which is both, and it has great exhibits and they work closely with indigenous communities. They frequently, I think in D.C., have like arts fairs and sort of cultural exhibitions going on there. And there's a museum in D.C. as well as in New York. So definitely a good resource. And then in terms of what to do, Helen talked about some of it already, but just like continue to educate yourself about Indigenous culture and practices. And we will have some more voices hopefully on our podcast, which will be really exciting. And then just like encourage brands you shop from to reach out and hear these voices if they are, you know, willing to share. And then, yeah, just continue to ask questions and participate in these discussions and don't shy away from them. I really wanted this to be a two-sided discussion like we talked about. So if you haven't already joined the Sustainable Fashion Printers or TSF, please do so. The link is com slash TSF will be on the screen in the description for you. But you really need to think critically about this. Like Helen mentioned, sustainability and all these topics is so nuanced. And we need to stop thinking of things in black and white. There's a lot of gray here. And I want to talk about it with all of you. And like, I'm sure Helen would love to talk about it with you too. If you have any questions or anything you want us to discuss further, or even the people you want us to have on the podcast, then tell us in TSF. And then did you want to wrap up with that quick note about like preaching to the choir? Coming to this conference for the first time, it was impressive to see all the players that were at this conference and at this metaphorical and literal table in some ways, but also wondering who is not at this table and essentially you know to what extent even though obviously events like this are valuable but 
are we sort of preaching to the choir? I feel in a way it's kind of a self-selecting situation where people who already believe in this mission are going to show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this at dinner last night around how people generally flock to things where they feel comfortable. So if a brand doesn't have their sustainability strategy figured out and it's a really big fast fashion brand and they show up at a conference like this, they're probably getting heckled. You mean she's not going to show up? Yes, you're epic. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Maybe it'll be like a principal sponsor. I don't know. Anyways, but yeah, they're probably going to be heckled and it's probably uncomfortable for them. But every single person and every single brand has had to take that uncomfortable first step. It's really about having the courage to take that step and show up, even if you know you're going to be heckled or even if you know you're not doing anything and you're doing a lot of bad things, having the courage to stop doing that and show up and participate. Going back to my very original point around how it was so heartwarming just to be in the room because there's so many people that genuinely care about this and it's doing so much amazing work. To your point too, we need to have other people that maybe aren't doing as much stuff and maybe not as educated or have a lot of excuses around really not doing it at this table too. And hopefully we see that change. It's not like a reflection on any part of like GFA not being inclusive. I think of it's course. just like you have to be proactive and like attend these things. So to wrap up, GFA, thank you so much for having us. It was so much fun. We both had so many amazing takeaways and we hope that for folks that weren't able to attend, you have learned some items. And if you are actually curious about the specific panels that we have talked about, I will leave a link on how you can actually watch the recording. Like Ellen mentioned, it's such a well-produced event. And I'm sure the recordings, we saw the ones from Copenhagen this year, we weren't able to attend. And you feel like you're there. If you feel like you missed out and you want to watch the panel, we can check out the link below. But yeah, thank you so much, GFA, for having us. And that's a wrap on this episode. If you got value from this, I would appreciate it if you could take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at Recloseted. Be sure to subscribe to the Recloseted Radio podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode and you have access to all of our valuable resources. And if you're feeling generous, please rate our podcast five stars and leave us a glowing review. I'm cheering you on, and together, let's transform the harmful fashion industry.